Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, We're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 this morning, and so on your handout there, I definitely encourage you to follow along. Um, I think that you you engage with things better when you have maybe something to look at. Um, If you're a note taker, grab a pen and maybe jot some things down as we go through this. Um, Engage with me as we go to, to scripture here. Now, the book of Revelation is one of those books that as we go through it, um, actually at the dinner table this week, my oldest daughter, she asked me, she said, Dad, is this another scary chapter in Revelation? Um, and so this is this actually isn't. I think this is one of the chapters where you get a little bit of a break. And she was like, oh, thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, as you read the Bible, it's, it's an, there, there's sort of like a couple things going on. You know, God is, is holy and he is righteous and he is uh, set apart and unique. And uh, there's this problem with us in sin. And so uh, there's like this division that's going on between us and God. Um, and so there's a there's an element of God where we go, man, there's a judgment that is coming. But we also know that preaching judgment does not produce repentance. Um, yet we need to know that we're lost. Um, and so there's a part of the book of Revelation that is a lot, has a lot to do with judgment. Um, and, but judgment doesn't produce repentance. It's actually God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we want to remember that God is he's forgiving in his nature. He's kind and he's compassionate. Um, He's long-suffering and he he comes to us. Uh, He understands us and he cares about us. And so he is the judge, uh, but he's also the scapegoat. Um, He he is the one who uh, can condemn us, but he's also the one who was condemned for us. Um, And so we want to remember this about God as we look at these passages. Um, if you know your Bible, you remember the story, the story of Moses, right? Moses is uh, uh, born while the Jewish people are in slavery. The Hebrew people, people are in slavery within Egypt. And uh, he's then, uh, there's this edict from the Pharaoh to kill the firstborn. And his mom puts him in the river. And, and then he's brought into the Pharaoh's uh, household. And he's raised up in privilege. And then later on in life, he finds out about his, we don't know when, but he finds out about his, his Hebrew background. And he sees that the, uh, the, the people that, that or he would call his own or being oppressed. They're being abused. And he rises up and he kills one of the taskmasters. Task, task and then after he kills this leader of the, the slaves, he then has to flee from Egypt and he finds himself wandering in the desert. And then you remember the story. He's wandering in the desert and he's kind of found a little bit of a life and he's looking after sheep and he sees a burning bush. Um, he sees this acacia bush burning, but not being consumed. Um, and we know from rabbinical sources, the way that the rabbis talked about an acacia book bush is they looked at it and they saw it as a, a symbol of sin. And so we believe that these events actually took place. Moses saw this, but there's also a lot of imagery within it. And so here's this bush that resembles sin and it's burning with fire. God shows up in this fire in the bush. And so sin is burning, but it's not being consumed. And so Moses, uh, when God introduces himself to Moses the first time here, he, re- he reveals himself as someone who's willing to for- forestall judgment. 
He's willing to be merciful. He's willing to say, I won't give you what you deserve, but instead I'll be gracious to you and give you what you don't deserve. And so God gives himself uh, and he communicates this way to, to Moses that he, he will judge. He, he is to be feared. And yet at the same time, he can be trusted to extend forgiveness. And so this is who God is throughout the scriptures. You know, many people will look at the Old Testament and say, that God of the Old Testament, he's kind of harsh. I, I prefer the one of the, the New Testament with the grace and the kindness. But you have to understand, this is God all along. He has been communicating from the very beginning that there's a brokenness. There is a divide between us and him because of sin. That he is going to judge sin, but he's also very willing to forgive as we trust him. And so it is God's glory and his holy, perfect kindness that draws Moses in. And the same way, that's what draws us in. Uh, there's this element of understanding that because of our brokenness, we find ourselves in a position where we would be condemned because of our rebellion, because of our sin. If we had to stand before our creator, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But fortunately, our creator took on flesh we know him as Jesus. And instead of leaving us in a position where we would have to be condemned, he took the condemnation on himself so that we could be forgiven. This is the gospel. This is the story of the scriptures. And so we need to remember who God is in this way. And so uh, my goal for us as we look at this passage this morning, uh, there's a handful of things that you could get distracted by. And one of the things that happens in the book of Revelation is we have a tendency to go, you know, who is the beast and who is the, uh, who is the beast of the sea and who is the beast of the land and what about this image over here and what about that image over there? And, and it's good to look at it. And maybe we go, oh, this character, I really identify with them or I'm really appalled by this character over here. And, and we do that when we look at story, when we understand how things work. Um, but let's not lose focus on who the main character is here and what he's up to. And so my goal for us is, in this passage is that you would walk away with a sense of, uh, of awe of who Jesus is, um, an overwhelming uh, reverence for who he is as the judge, but also a longing to embrace him as the one who has forgiven us. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Father, we, uh, we do find ourselves so much in need of your grace. Um, we need you so much. We need your kindness. Um, I, I do not want to stand before you in my own merit, in my own efforts, but I am so thankful that you have put me inside of your son Jesus's character, his merit. Uh, he has earned for me salvation that I could never secure for myself. Uh, he has earned for me a place in your family that I could never earn for myself. Um, I thank you that you are you're patient and you're long-suffering and you waited with me through my times of walking in darkness all the, long, all the while longing to draw me into light. And so, God, I just pray that we would see your kindness, that we would see your goodness, um, and that we would proclaim this message of new life in your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So take a look at it here with me in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. We'll start there. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. 
Um, he's seeing signs that are, are, are large. They're awe-inspiring. They're captivating of his mind. But they're signs, right? So one of the things we want to remember as we read the book of Revelation is that there are many times where John will tell us these are, these are signs, these are symbols, okay? Awe-inspiring sign in heaven, the place that God dwells. Seven angels with the last or excuse me, with the seven last plagues. That word last is an important one. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've seen series of judgments. This is the last one before Christ's return. For with them, God's wrath will be completed, right? It's the last one. It's going to be completed. When we get through uh, Revelation 16, 17, 18, 19 that are describing these things, Revelation 20, we're then going to get to the millennial reign of Jesus and the eternal state that God promises to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. So these are things that are going to bring that end, that completion about. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Um, it's interesting. We look out our window here and you guys can see Job's peak and everything pretty clearly. It's a beautiful winter day. And, um, um, but that's not how glass was at this point in time. Glass would have been uh, a substance that was kind of a milky substance at best. You would have maybe been able to see through it, but for the most part, we, they didn't have clean, clear glass like this. And so you can kind of picture these people that, uh, he says, those who had victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with harps. From God, And so there's this group of people who go through the tribulation period. Uh, they overcome the beast, the mark, and they, instead of living like the world around them, thinking uh, the way that the world around them thinks and doing things like uh, with their hands that the world around them would do, they've actually taken the mark of the father and the mark of the son, and they've lived upright and holy lives. There's no lie within their mouths and no lie within their lives. And so that's kind of how they were described in Revelation chapter 14. But they're standing on this, this sea of, of glass, and it's an idiom actually for the, the brass laver, which was in the tabernacle, the place where people would be cleansed before they would go into the temple. And so this sea of glass is a, a metaphor for those who have been cleansed, those who have been made new, those who have, it says, conquered, and that means to overcome or prevail. Um, they've gone through the fire, they've gone through the testing, and they have been cleansed, they've conquered, they've prevailed. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 37 says that those of us who are in Christ are more than conquerors. So uh, these are things that are true of the tribulation saints, but they're also true of us, that you and I, we have gone through uh, the process of being cleansed by God. When Christ died on the cross for our sake and, and for our sins, he cleansed us, he wiped away all the wrongdoing that we have done, that we are doing and that we will do. He paid the consequences for all sin so that we could be cleansed, so that we could walk into the presence of God, right? That's what that laver was about. They would wash and then they were able to enter into the tabernacle. They were able to enter into the place where God was. And you and I, we have been cleansed. So much so that in fact, uh, God's spirit and his presence no longer resides within a tabernacle or a temple, but it actually says that we have become the temple of God. That you and I, through the blood of Jesus, have been cleansed to the point that he resides with in us. Kind of amazing that he has overcome and prevailed in that way for us. We are more than conquerors. We've now become sons and daughters. 
And so they're getting ready to sing. They have these harps that are given to them and uh, their victory is marked out as those who have stayed true to Jesus. If you remember last week in Revelation chapter 14, it says that these people, they follow Jesus wherever he went and wherever they went, their good works followed them. Uh, you want to live a good and meaningful life, we stay close to Jesus. Um, and this is their reward at this point in time. They sing a song that is coming here. The other thing that we have within this is royal judgment from the throne. We see uh, that the king is delegating the execution of judgment to the members of his court. He's going to, through one of the uh, one of the four um, living creatures, he's going to pass these bowls uh, of judgment to the angelic creatures. And these angelic creatures are then going to enact what we'll see in Revelation chapter 16 and God's final judgments through these bowls. And uh, He's, he's delegating this authority to them. And then uh, the other thing that we see here is that the members of his court, those who are not necessarily enacting the decisions, they're worshiping God. It's almost as though God's army here of, of judges is being sent forth in song. Um, and so there's a couple important things that we need to look at. First, God, God is sovereign. He is in control. He is king of the entire universe. He is on his throne of the universe. He judges righteously and myriads, countless numbers of holy angels act on his behalf. Here, seven are going to have special um, authority delegated to them to enact these things. The second is those who are called according to his purpose. They delight in his character in his, and his action. They know him and they trust him. Uh, they, they know who God is and they trust him and they're excited to see what he's going to do next. Uh, the faithful in Christ, we have an excellent memory of his ways, his wonders, and his works. Um, what God, who God is and what he has done, that, that has a prominent place in the mind of believers. Uh, I shared with you guys last week, I went down to Texas. I got to go to a conference and uh, uh, I looked on my phone and I found a disc golf course I wanted to play. And so I drove about 40 minutes northwest and I went and played this disc golf course. And then I got on my phone again and I was like, where's barbecue? And it's pretty close. Okay, I'll go to that barbecue joint. And I went to the barbecue joint and I sat down and I'm getting ready to eat. And I looked at my phone and it will not respond. It's just like not going to play along anymore. What won't work. So I'm 45 minutes from my hotel in a city I've never been to. Um, and there's a gas station across the seat, the, the street. And I thought, you know, I could go over there and ask for directions, but I'm a man. So that ain't happening. Um, <laughs> and then I thought, you know, maybe I could look at resetting the phone, but I don't really, I, I actually don't know how to do that. I tried a couple things. It wouldn't work. Um, I could go purchase a map at that gas station. And then I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to retrace my steps. Um, I'm going to picture in my head the drive that I, that I did maybe two, three hours ago. I'm going to retrace my steps back to the hotel. And so I did. I retraced my steps, was able to find the streets. Oh, there's that landmark. I'm going to head this way. And oh, I remember that. I'll turn left here. Um, and I got to a main road and I was able to get back to the hotel. And here's the thing. In this life, um, who God is and what he has done, sometimes we lose track of that. Sometimes we find ourselves 45 minutes from where we should be and don't remember how we got there. But faith has a good memory. Faith has the ability to say, but I know that God brought me through this turn of life. I know that uh, his character is true and that I can trust him in these places. Faith has a good memory. We're always able to retrace our steps back to the closeness that the father has called us to. We renew our minds. And that's what these saints around the throne have. They have an excellent memory of who God is 
and what he has done and where the closest barbecue joint is. No, not that part. Um, it says now that they sing this song. And so they, they sing the song, verse 3, they sang the song of God's servant Moses, which Exodus 15, Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses, and the song of the Lamb, which is Revelation chapter 5. And it goes like this. And so probably this song is uh, two separate songs that are sung here. Um, uh, maybe, maybe somebody like Micah got a hold of the music and made, you know, one of those collaboration songs that they do. I don't know. Um, I certainly couldn't arrange it. But uh, two separate songs. And what John does is he gives us the highlights. It says, great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the Nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. And so uh, do me a favor. Let's read this one more time, but look at it on your handout with me. Um, I have some, maybe a couple definitions for you on these words. Uh, but what the song, these songs do is they praise God's, his deeds, his justice, his truth, um, his glory and his holiness. Okay, that's, that's what it's, it's doing. This is who God is, and this is what God has done. And that first word, great, is uh, megas. We, we, you know, we get the word mega, big. Um, if you grew up like me and you played some Nintendo as a kid, mega man, this is like mega God, right? Um, he, is, he is above everyone else. He is greater. He is bigger. Um, and awe-inspiring are your works, it says. Awe-inspiring is the idea of something that's wondrous, uh, something that you look at and you, you have a hard time looking away. Um, maybe the first time you met your spouse, she was wondrous. He was wondrous. You, you just couldn't look away. But this is not human wonder. This is divine wonder. He is amazing. It says that his, his works are that way, and those are his actions and undertakings, the individual things that God has, has done and the overall scheme of what he is doing. Uh, you, do you understand that God has all of human history in his hands, that Jesus created the world out of nothing? He is the uncreated creator. He took nothing and made everything that we see. Uh, he is the one who has all of history in his hands. He is Mega. He is wondrous. He is awe-inspiring. But did you also know that this world is a little bit broken? Um, this last week I shared with you that we had, we had uh, our dogs had puppies. Um, I almost said we had puppies. I can't do that. One of our dogs had puppies and uh, seven puppies. Six of them were very healthy. And one of them, uh, we found that he, his, his jaw was a little crooked and he, he couldn't eat. And so uh, we were trying to help this little, this little puppy. We named him Jack. And um, I don't know if it was a mistake, but we gave our hearts away to him. Um, and uh, he ended up, we believe, with um, pneumonia and we lost him. Um, and it hurt like crazy because we had attached to this little guy and he's innocent and he's cute and he's just all these things. Um, and uh, that ain't the way it's supposed to be. It just isn't. Um, and and that's, that's a very minor thing compared to what many of you have been through as far as hurt is concerned. But it hurt. Um, and uh, one of my daughters, she said, you know, dad, why is it this way? Why does God allow this? Why does God allow this kind of thing to happen? And I know the answer. 
I understand that God made us uh, with free choice. We're not automatons. We're not robots. We don't just do what he makes us do, but he gives us the ability to choose. And within the ability to choose is the ability to not love him. And when we don't love him, we enter into a rebellion that Satan has brought about. And when we enter into this rebellion that doesn't love God, we inevitably hurt each other. And so sin and death have been brought into the world because of this. I know that answer, but when you hurt, you don't really like it. Um, you'd like there to be a different answer. In fact, my daughter said, I hate free choice <laughs> because that's what's brought this about. Um, I'm going to do my best to not be overly emotional. It really did hurt um, losing this puppy. Uh, and so I'm going to do my best to not be overly emotional. Um, but it's not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to see the innocent lose life. We're not supposed to see these things take place. We know this is the case. Uh, God has written it on our hearts that there is a better way. And what the book of Revelation reveals to us is that God's actions and his grand undertakings are bringing about a time and a place where sin and death and evil are removed. Now, here's the cool thing. If you are in Christ, the cross has removed these things from you. This body will die, but my spirit and my soul will live on in him. Death has no sting because if I were to die today, I join him in the heavenly realm. I join his kingdom, not just, not just a mirror or a shadow of it on earth, but I join the real thing if I lose my life. And that's the security and the belief and the hope that I have in Christ that my sin has been dealt with. And because of that, I can approach God in a place where I'm confident that I belong to him. Not because of what I have done, not because of my merit, but because of Jesus's merit on my behalf. His undertakings are awe-inspiring. He knows our brokenness. He knows our hurt. He knows our rebellion. And he's done everything necessary for us to be one with him again, to secure for us eternal life. But the undertaking that the book of Revelation proclaims is that when Christ returns... There will be a series of judgments, the likes of which the world has not seen, that will bring about his eternal reign. And that's what we look forward to. So great and awe-inspiring are his works. It says that he is the Lord. That means owner or master. He is, he is God. He is almighty, the omnipotent one, the one with all of the power. He's just, that means he's upright and he's true. He's genuine and absolute. If you ever wondered if truth was relative or not, God is absolute truth. I don't care what society or anybody else says, he is absolute. And so are his ways, his path. He is the king of the nations. It says, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name. That word fear means to have, uh, there's fright or reverence and respect. You know, we talk about God and, and he is the judge and he has absolute control and he has absolute power. And in his absolute uh, position of authority over all of the earth, including my life, if I were to stand before him in my sin, I would be in a lot of trouble 
It'd be a terrifying place to be. But he is also uh, the one who deserves to be glorified, to be praised, to be honored because of his name. That means his person or his reputation. I don't know what Jesus' reputation is with you, but let me tell you what it is within the scriptures. When you think about Jesus, think about him within what the scriptures say. And Jesus' reputation within the scriptures is that he was God in human flesh. Jesus' reputation within the scriptures was that he comforted those who were hurting. Jesus' reputation within in the scriptures was of somebody that could walk into a situation and make truth so clear that to some people it was blinding, but to others it was enlightening and it brought them life. He was somebody who could walk into your life and he would know everything that was going on. He could meet a woman at the well and tell her her whole life story and reveal to her, her that he is the true Messiah. Jesus had the reputation of being one that knew everything everything and died to forgive it. He knew all of the brokenness. He knew all of the pain. He called us to follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. He went to the cross so that we could be forgiven. This is how you should glorify him, think and suppose about him says that for he alone, you alone, and that means the only one, the solitary one, are holy, perfect in every way. Have you ever met anyone that was perfect in every way? Did you wake up in the morning and go, perfect in every way? No. <laughs> we know we're not perfect in every way. And we know everyone that we've ever met is not perfect in every way. But here comes Jesus. Perfect in every way, able to reveal sin and not condemn the woman caught in adultery. I know what you did. I don't condemn you either. Go forward and sin no more. The one who could look you in the eye and tell you of your brokenness and then say, let me make you whole, perfect in every way. The one who knew pain and wept at Lazarus's tomb. Let me comfort you with who he is. The one who knows all of our wrong actions, those done on purpose and those done out of neglect, and forgave them all. Perfect in every way. It says all of the nations will come and worship. That means bow before and act in obedience. Um, those are, there are those of us who choose to follow Jesus in obedience now. There are those who will do so because they will see him as the ruler and know there's no other option. And so I'm grateful that I can approach him with a bended knee that also receives an embrace. He says, they will worship you because of your righteous acts. Those are God's ordinances, what he has decreed to be right and wrong. But it's also the amendments of wrong. And I just shared this already because I got my foot, my head one or the other. I don't know. I move too quick. I get excited about who Jesus is. But uh, the amendment of wrong, his righteous acts, that he can take something that is wrong and make it right. He can take something that is broken and make it whole. He could take me, a sinner, and make me a saint. He could take me, a rebel, and make me a son. He could take me, a 
uh, uh, the, the one who is pushing back and lead me to embrace him. He can amend the wrongs. And he says that his righteous acts have been revealed. That means publicly displayed for all to see. Jesus, when he died on that cross, he died in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses. When he rose from the dead, he rose to hundreds of eyewitnesses. He was publicly portrayed as crucified for us on our behalf. The, the secret of Jesus' death on the cross is no secret at all. Everyone knows that it happened. And there's all the evidence that he rose from the dead as well. But within the book of Revelation, these things, these judgments at the end will be revealed and publicly displayed for all to see as well. And so you look at who God is and what he has done, and he's really something else. And so that's what they worship him for. In verse 5, it says, After this, I looked in the heavenly temple, and the tabernacle of testimony was open. Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues, dressed in pure white, bright linen. And that pure white, bright linen is an indication of holiness, those who are um, made holy by God, um, with golden sashes. Uh, Jesus wore a golden sash in Revelation 1.13. It was a display of his royalty, his superiority, his dignity, and his glory. And so these angels are dressed in this way. They're acting on behalf of Jesus. And so his righteousness, his royalty, his superiority, his dignity, his glory are given to them so that he can act on their behalf. Uh, kings have done this throughout throughout history, right? Um, one of the marks of somebody that had authority within, uh, within England is they wore a gold chain. It was a very specific chain that they wore and it indicated that they acted on behalf of the king. And so this is Jesus doing that with these angels. They're acting on his behalf. And later on, we get into the book of Revelation. You'll find that those of us who are in Christ are dressed in this way as well. We're intended to act on his behalf. So they're dressed this way. They have the golden sashes wrapped around their chest. Uh, verse 7, one of the four living creatures, uh, if you haven't been with us, the four living creatures are angelic beings that are around uh, God on his throne. Uh, everything about them is intended to uh, illustrate God's glory, God's holiness, God's power. Um, and so they pass these bowls, it says here. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. We've talked about the word wrath before. It is God's righteous indignation towards sin. It is his fitting look on the harm that we do to each other. It says, then the temple was filled with smoke, verse 8, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, that is an interesting line, uh, that there's this smoke within the temple and that no one can enter the temple, uh, the, the this place where God is, until this is done. Uh, there are several places in the Old Testament where something like this happens. The one uh, that, that is probably most fitting for what we're looking at here is Exodus chapter 40. Uh, we think of Moses, right? He goes on from his interaction with the burning bush, and then God uses him to remove the people uh, of uh, 
the Hebrew people from the land of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and they go into the Sinai desert and they're there at Mount Sinai. And then we know the story. Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives him the Ten Commandments. The other thing that God gave him on the mountain were specific instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built. And what the tabernacle was, it was the tent of meeting. It was the place where the Jewish people thought, this is where we go to meet God. And these are all the things that we have to do to meet God. We were cleansed by the priests and our sins are atoned for by the, by the blood of an animal. And there's all this work that has to be done for us to be right with God, all this imagery that we go through to be right with God. And in Exodus chapter 40, it said that God's appearance was in a cloud and it would actually, when it filled the tabernacle, Moses and no one else could enter. And what that was symbolizing, it was God acting as king with absolute authority over the people right? He is, he is acting as absolute authority over the people. You go back and read um, Exodus 40, and one of the things that you'll see is that when the, when the cloud was there, they, they didn't move. When it lifted, God would guide them somewhere else. He was acting in absolute authority over them. And so what this event symbolized was he, he's the king and he's directing his people. You could look at this and you could say this was the one and only time that a theocracy ruled on the earth. And it, wasn't a, it wasn't another form of human government, it was a theocracy. It was God ruling on the earth, particularly over this nation. We all feel that way, right? When God tells us he's going to rule, we just scream and get out of the room. But what this Old Testament reference does is it helps us understand what the angels and the bulls and the plagues are about. They're God acting as ruler over the entire earth. Monarchies and dictatorships, republics, socialism, communism, oligarchies, democracies, and all the forms of human government will cease when Christ returns. There will be a time uh, when God's realm in heaven and God's realm on earth are eternally united, undivided, and without detractors. All right, Christ prayed that, uh, taught us to pray that God's will would be done in heaven as, on earth as it is in heaven, that his kingdom would come in our lives. And so in, in an element, this is true of us now, that if we've been cleansed and Christ is in us and we are a part of his kingdom, uh, then we now live with his heavenly realm in our earthly, earthly realm, united and undivided. We are no longer detractors within his kingdom. But there are many those who are not, right? You don't have to tr look real hard to figure that out. What this time at the end of the book of Revelation reveals is, is that when Jesus returns, the division that exists and the detractors that fight against God will be judged and removed from the earth. Um, and so uh, that's what this is about. But before that can take place, a reckoning has to happen. Before the millennial reign of Jesus happens, uh, through his holy angels, God is going to hand down a verdict on fallen humanity, fallen angels, sin, death, and evil. And that's what these bowls are about in the coming chapters. It is the final judgment of God on the earth to eradicate sin, death, evil, and those who remain in rebellion against him. And so when we look at this, the, the chapter, this chapter, Revelation 15, it reminds us of God's character and his actions. It, prevents, it presents a fearful depiction of the imminent divine judgment uh, that is coming on a wicked world. And these final acts will eradicate evil, evil in order to set up a kingdom that is without pain, sickness, death, or any other consequence of rebellion. Um, 
We are encouraged to imagine a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. That's what we're encouraged to imagine, this place where only righteousness dwells. But the other thing that passages like this do is they should encourage us to, what does this look like in my life today? Uh, How would I live only in righteousness now? Um, How would God's sovereign hand guide me and my family? How would God's sovereign hand guide me in my workplace? Uh, How would I honor him in these areas? If you know the story after the Exodus, um, Moses and the Jewish people, they wandered the desert for 40 years, and Moses, um, he doesn't get to enter the promised land. But Joshua does. And just as Joshua cleansed the land prior to the formation of the nation of Israel, so Jesus, so too Jesus will cleanse the entire earth preceding his eternal reign. It's actually an interesting study to look at Joshua and Revelation together. There's a lot of similarities. Uh, Joshua, uh, Jesus's name in Hebrew was Yeshua, Joshua. I mean, they, they share the same name. Um, and so some of the things that Joshua does there to set up the nation of Israel, God is going to do on a much grander scale. Jesus is going to do on a much grander scale during this end time. Jesus's actions during his first coming have already cleansed the hearts of believers. We talked about this. You and I, if we're in Christ, we've already been cleansed. Um, There's no condemnation for us. Um, We are free from the consequences of sin. At Jesus's second coming, he will judge and cleanse the entire earth, set up his everlasting kingdom, and complete what he started. And that's what the book of Revelation is revealing that when Jesus returns, these things will take place. There'll be a time of great tribulation. There will be God's final judgments on the earth. When we start to look at the bowls in chapter 16, these aren't things that are consequences of uh, human actions. These aren't things that are consequences of demonic actions. This is God moving things on the earth. Um, And that's what these judgments will, will be about when we get there to Revelation chapter 16. So as we, as we finish what I, this chapter, what I want to do is uh, I want you to kind of bring in who Jesus is here. Um, throughout the scriptures, we've seen that God is both the judge and the scapegoat. He is both the one who condemns and takes condemnation on himself for us. And so Jesus, he is both the judge and the savior. He is the one who can rightfully tell us that we are broken. He is the one who can rightfully name us as rebels against him as king of the universe and against his kingdom and has the right to execute us as a rebel. Yet he is also the savior and the redeemer who took the cross for us. He's both. Uh, Jesus is the one who wields a sword and yet was nailed to a tree. He is the one who can cut us to the quick and cast us from his presence. But he's also the one who took the nails in his hands and his feet so that we could be freed from that, to redeem us, to pay it in full. He's both. Jesus is both terrible in his wrath and delightful in his love. He is, he is terrible in his wrath, his, his righteous indignation, his fitting hatred of the harm that we do to each other. If he were to stand and judge over our lives, it would be a terrifying place to be. But he is also delightful in his love, condescending to us, long-suffering with us, 
reaching down to us, understanding us, forgiving us. He's both. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the one who created everything out of nothing, the uncreated God. And he's also the one that's going to see all of this to completion. He holds it all in his hands. He is sovereign. Everything that happens on earth is under his control. I don't know about you, but I couldn't even get the election to go the way I wanted it to. (laughs) And yet it's exactly what he has in mind. Because his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. And he has a better plan than I do. And I can trust him. He was dead and yet lives forevermore. Uh, Jesus went to that cross and he literally physically died. When they put that spear in the side and water and blood came out, that was an indication that is a dead man. That is a dead man. He was wrapped in cloths and buried in a tomb and left for dead. Returned to to be mourned, only to be found alive forevermore. He was dead, but he lives forevermore. Uh, He will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Would you like life? Jesus says here it is. It's free. Would you like to be forgiven? It's paid. Would you like your sins wiped away so that you can be cleansed? It's done. Yet, he will not leave sin unpunished. He freely gives, but he will not leave sin unpunished. That's why he went to the cross, so that justice could be done, so that I could be free, so that you could be free. He is a lion and a lamb. That's who Jesus is. He is both fierce and sacrificial. He is both... Have you ever gone to the zoo and look at a lion? I did not think, let's cuddle. <laughs> I didn't do it. But you can pick a lamb up. And you, can, you can hold it. He is both fierce and tender. He stands alone in holiness and kindness. He truly does. He is set apart from us in every way, yet he joins us to himself. And this is the, this is the, <laughs> the, the glory of sanctification, of being made like Jesus, that if you are and I are in Christ, he has set us apart, he has made us new, and day by day, as we look into the mirror, we stop seeing ourselves, and we start seeing him. We stop talking like ourselves and we talk like him. We stop thinking like ourselves and we think like him. He he makes us like himself. It's an amazing thing. And so I want to close you with these words. If you've never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, don't watch the movie. Read the book. But there's a place where Susan is asking about meeting this lion named Aslan. And she says to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
And so while it may be difficult for us to take in all of who Jesus is, in some ways he really is a puzzle. Um, In some ways, God made flesh to save us is a conundrum. But it doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make it any less real. In fact, I think it probably makes it more real. And so I pray that you leave here with your mind fixed on Jesus. Um, If you came here hurting, he, he cares about you. He's compassionate. If you came here filthy in sin, uh, he wants to cleanse you. Um, if you came here incomplete and lacking, he wants to make you whole. Let's honor him. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for what you've done and who you are. We thank you that you are uh, higher than I can imagine, more wondrous than I can take in. You're perfect in every way, fully justified in condemning me for my rebellion against you and my sinful ways that have hurt those that I love. And yet, you're kind. And you're compassionate. You're understanding. You forgive. Out of the riches of your mercy, you have paid the, for the consequences of my sin with your own blood. And I no longer stand in condemnation, but I am freed and forgiven. Uh, Father, the longer I live on this earth, the the more the more excited I am about you coming back. I don't love watching my wife cry. love watching my little girl cry. But I know you weep with us. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.